name is Kayla. I'm a partner here at Mercy View. I will be reading from Romans chapter 13 today, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection to Uh, Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. Well, tonight, uh, you heard Kayla read it. This is the next passage in Romans, Romans 13, 1 through 7. And all of a sudden, it seems like out of nowhere, Paul moves from, you know, the personal, the heart. He moves to sort of like, here's how we interact with one another in the local church. We, we began to see there's some overlap there. He starts to talk about some of the same ways we relate to one another in the church. We relate to those outside of the church in the same way, even our enemies. And it seems like... Paul introduces a category tonight that may, for you, may seem unnecessary. Did you catch what the the category was? It's the category of government. What is Paul doing here? Well, one thing that you need to remember is the context in which Paul is writing Romans. Paul is writing this book to the Roman church in a time where this particular question for them would have been very relevant. And of course, we would say here at Mercy View, any time that we look at the scriptures and look at the context of the scriptures, um, that particular thing that we're looking at was intended to be understood from any culture that would come after it, right? So Paul is both, again, we got to remember this, he's talking to the Roman church tonight because this is something that's relevant uh, uh, to them um, in their time, but he's talking to us as well. And what is Paul doing in the second half of the book of Romans? We've said that Paul is taking the first half, Romans 1 through 11, and he's starting to say, here is how this is lived out. The series we're in is called Anthem of Grace. And another way you could say that is, here's how you sing out the gospel in your lives. And tonight, Paul is expanding or introducing another category for you and I as kingdom citizens to consider as we think about uh, our engagement with the gospel. And it's this category of the government. Now, um, Paul's point tonight is going to become clear as we move through this. But um, as we look at this tonight, I I want to um, ask you to pray for me because this this is heavy lifting tonight. Um, I told the story to the partnership seminar earlier. Um, I asked a really trusted pastor friend this week, like, all right, brother, tell me what you preached when you preached Romans 13, one through seven. And his response to me was never preached it. I said, do you, do you preach from the book of Romans? And he was like, yes, but 
I didn't preach Romans 13, 1 through 7. Actually, in my prep time this week, I was surprised at who hasn't preached it. Um, people that I look up to and, and respect. But as, as you've heard us say here at Mercy View, we don't skip anything. We believe the whole counsel of God is meant to help us, inform us, and bring about transformation. Tonight is no exception to that. Romans 13 is really intended to help us see two things. The first is this. Those who govern righteously punish the bad and promote the good. And then secondly, those who are governed carefully submit to those who govern. So if you have your Bibles or electronic devices, keep them open to Romans chapter 13, uh, beginning in verse 1. That's where we'll be uh, tonight. Now, let me give you a little bit more context for this place that... uh, Rome would have, the Roman church would have received um, this letter. Uh, Paul wrote Romans when the emperor of Rome was a guy by the name of Claudius. Now, Claudius is not really well known. His son-in-law uh, and his successor, Nero, is who is um, more well known. But the reality is, is that if you were an emperor in Rome, uh, you were out for yourself. Uh, the, the emperor's at, at this time, through, through, through all of this time, really didn't care a ton about Christianity. And so it was extremely broken culture, far more broken than even you and I would experience today in, in, in America. Um, Paul knew that it was a culture of, of tyrants, petty dictators who were vindictive and who were evil. He knew what it was to see a society engulfed up to its ears in sexual perversion Uh, He knew what it was like to see the irreparable breakdown of the family unit. The tax collectors at this time were absolutely extortionists. They went above and beyond gathering what was due to them. And if anybody complained, they would take their life in a heartbeat. Many people think Paul wrote this section of Romans because the Christian's relationship with the government at this time would have been front and center for them. So that's the context that Paul writes this book in. So look with me, if you would, beginning in verses 1 through 3. As we enter Romans 13, Paul wastes no time and begins to speak to this relationship between kingdom citizens and the government. He says this. He says, we are to be subject to that government, that we are to not resist what God has appointed. He goes on later to say that we are not to fear those in authority. So Paul is is very plainly at the very beginning of this chapter saying, be subject to what I have, uh, what God has appointed. And, and, And that means to place yourself under leaders, even in government, and submit to them out of reverence for God. Now, Paul does not mean that we should obey governments no matter what. We will come back to that here in just a moment. But what he does mean is that their authority, and this is important for us at the very beginning, comes from him. And that we should obey them within the jurisdiction that he gives them. Now, here's what's interesting to me about really the whole Bible. We tend to read the Bible through our lenses. Like we ask this question as we read a passage of scripture. What does this have to do with me? Right? But one of the things, and that's a good question, by the way. But one of the things that that Paul is doing here is saying, um, I need government leaders to know this about God. 
All right, so you and I, I don't know if any politicians that we have here in the house, forgive me if you are one, but um, most of us, if not all of us sitting in this room are the governed, not the government. And so Paul's point really at the very beginning of this, again, he knew, actually scholars also believe that, that he expected that government leaders would read this letter. So we want to, he wants to make sure that those who govern know where their authority comes from. In other words, this is not just a passage being written to those who are being governed, but to those who are governing. So look at the last part of verse 1. Here's what Paul says. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So Paul is wanting government leaders who are going to be reading this letter to know that any authority that they have been given comes from God. No civil government exists in the nation, in the world, never has or ever will, apart from God having instituted it. Actually, in the book of Daniel, one of the prophetic books of the Old Testament, um, Daniel himself reminds the people at that time, God removes kings and he sets up kings. There is a God-given moral law above the law of the state. So Paul is using language to say what is in order to say what ought to be or what should be. Because this is where some of the tension comes in, right? This is what you're already beginning to probably feel. Um, how do we deal then with, with governments, leaders, rulers, authorities who don't recognize that, right? So in Romans 13... Um, and we're going to do this real briefly because actually the question of what does this have to do with us is what we're going to spend most of our time in tonight. But there are a couple of things that I believe Paul is saying to governments or authorities or rulers about how they should lead. So what are those? First, look at verse 4. They are to punish the bad, right? We said that that uh, the first thing tonight that we want to grab is that those who govern righteously punish the bad and promote the good. So what does it mean for government leaders to punish the bad? Notice that in verse 4, it says that rulers do not carry the sword for no reason. The sword here in verse 4 represents uh, the power to punish, and sometimes to make war. Now, the point of this passage is not to discuss the ins and outs of, of lethal force or to outline some sort of just war policy. Paul's not attempting to do that here, but what he is saying is that governments should bear the responsibility of punishing wrongdoing. It's a work of establishing or upholding justice, and, 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 the, and the reason why God set it up this way is because of God's standard about humans, human beings. We are created in the image of him, of God. So anything that harms or hurts or oppresses or exploits or hinders, uh, degrades or threatens human beings as God imagers should become a target for government's opposition. Verse 3 actually says that, Government is intended to be God's servants in doing that. And so they should do it with diligence. They should do it with righteous justice. And I think Paul, I mean, Paul is talking 
to non-Christian governments here. I mean, the government in Rome, not believers. He's saying whether you're Christians or not, that's how this should work. But secondly, governments should both punish the bad, but also promote good. Look at the beginning of verse three. Paul says that leaders are to be God's servant for your good. Now, I don't wanna read too much into what Paul is saying here, since again, he's not intending to lay out this exhaustive philosophy politically here. But one of government's jobs is to promote the good, the general welfare of their citizens. In America, it actually um, finds some of that written in our own constitution. But I want you to look down in verse six. It actually says that the government under the authority of God is even to attend to the way that our taxes are spent. Now, many of us tonight might quibble with how that's done. But Paul's intent here is to say that we should be um, led by leaders, Christian or not, who will take even our taxes and use them for good purposes. Those who govern should both punish the bad and promote the good. Now, I wanna spend the rest of our time tonight thinking through the implications of what Paul has to say to us here as ones who are governed. Again, I'm, I'm assuming that's most, if not all of us here in this room. So what does it look like for you and I to function as kingdom citizens in a nation like America? How do we engage with an imperfect government in America? Do we always do what they tell us to do? Are there any exceptions to what Paul is talking about here? Here's the second thing that I want to invite you to see this evening. Those who are governed carefully submit to those who govern. Would you say that again? Those who are governed carefully submit to those who govern. So we said at the outset that Paul seems to pull no punches. He is saying, let every person, in verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So here is Paul's first directive to us as we think about our relationship to a government. So it's, it's simple. You probably already heard it. Submit. Submit. Um, that's the first reason that we are to, um, to think about what this looks like to be subject to the governing authorities. Now, there are a few things that come from that, though. The first reason for that submission is something we've already said. All authority is instituted by God who governs everything. And so the civil authorities are God's servants and ministers, as imperfect as they are. Second, and we've already said this too, it is for our good that there is civil authority rather than everyone doing what is right in their own eyes, right? The, the civil authority is kind of a, a boundary. Third, and it's the flip side of the sword coin, if we engage, like you and I, in unlawfulness, they should punish us. Like it's good to submit to a government that if you are unlawful, you don't meet the sword. Now this raises all kinds of questions that I'm sure are bubbling up. Like what about evil rulers? What about sinful governments? Do we always obey? Is there ever a place for civil disobedience? And those are good questions. Here's what I'd like to do to get at that tonight, and, uh, and here it is. I want to talk about 
a few things that you and I need to consider as we think about submitting. Now, Paul, I believe at a very high level here, is not talking about unqualified submission. In fact, look at verse 5 with me, if you would. He says this, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, in one sense, what Paul is saying here is that your conscience should rightly condemn you if you are truly doing something unlawful and wrong. Whether it's forbidden by the state or not, like you're a Christian, your conscience is one that should convict you if you're doing something that is wrong. But Paul is not saying that's the only way to think of conscience. He is also saying the flip side is also true. If your conscience is not clear in obeying the government, you're not under God's wrath if you disobey. Now, how do we navigate these choppy waters? I have a few things I think we need to consider. First, we consider the relationship. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Submission always depends on the type of relationship we are talking about. For example, a wife does not submit to a husband in the same way that a child submits to a parent or that a citizen submits to the government. Because each of those relationships carry a, a different kind of role, a different kind of responsibility. And unlike God, governments and the people that run them are not perfect. So when the government commands a Christian to do something wrong or prohibits them from doing something that God commands, they can, they can consider respectfully disobeying. The only relationship, friends, that you and I are called to give our complete submission to in an absolute sense is to God. Now, we see examples of disobedience in the Bible like this with the midwives. Um, we see that in Exodus 1, Daniel and Daniel 6. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even in Romans 8, we, we saw this earlier. Believers are being killed all the day long because of their preaching of the gospel, proclamation of the gospel. Paul is very aware of, as he's writing this book, and has personal experience himself of bad governments, and, and, and even himself civilly disobeying. So yes, there are always exceptions. In Acts, we are given the example of Peter and John being commanded by the Jewish authorities to cease preaching the gospel. And what, do you remember what they said? They said, we must obey God rather than man. So here's how I think we could say it tonight. The submission that we give to government is first conscientious submission. Because the state, listen, we just said this, the state ultimately derives its authority from God. If a law is passed which forces you and I to disobey God, then Christians not only have the right but I believe the duty to conscientiously uh, disobey that law. Now, as one scholar said, um, he said, if the state commands what God forbids, or if the state forbid, forbids what God commands, then civil disobedience is a Christian duty. But I, I remember I, I said careful, right, submission? Careful means this, unless a clear biblical issue is at stake or our conscience is being violated in some way, 
We should not stretch the exception created in Scripture to disobey the government. Our actions toward the government ultimately serve as a witness of the gospel to a watching world. So, so we should consider the relationship. This leads me to the second thing that we need to consider as we think about how we do this. I just said that unless a clear biblical issue is at stake or your conscience is being violated, we aren't free to disobey the government. That's what Paul is saying here. So how do we determine that? Like that is where the tension lies. Can we just be honest about that tonight? That is where the rubber hits the road. So this is another way I think that's helpful as we think about our relationship to the government. Consider the issue. All right, consider the relationship. But now we're saying consider the issue. Again, if there is a clear biblical issue that is in opposition to what the government is asking us to do, Paul is, is saying you do have freedom to conscientiously and carefully disobey that. But the word clear here, when we say a clear biblical issue, carries a lot of weight. Like when I say clear, I mean things like this. When the government requires a Christian doctor to violate his or her Hippocratic oath and perform an abortion, you should obey God, not man. I'm talking about like if a boss requires you to lie to extend profits, you should obey God, not man. I'm talking about if government ever forced us as a church to be silent about the gospel or to refrain from teaching our convictions regarding what the Bible says is right and wrong. Friends, I'm just telling you, I will obey God, not man. That word clear carries a lot of weight. Here's the reality. Those things may be clear that we just talked about, but there are so many more issues that are not. Well, one thing that we need to do then is be really careful in making distinctions. Is this clearly a moral issue? Or is there reason to see this more as an ethical issue? Or is this issue one in which different people in the church can land in different places on that issue because it is truly an issue of conscience? So that would then mean it, it requires us to respect one another's conscience, not attempt to bind other conscious, uh, consciousnesses or, or um, sort of like uh, violate that conscience. And again, we're, the context here is like if the government is asking us to do something that is against all that. I want to point you to an article that was uh, been super helpful for me as I've thought about this issue quite a bit over the past couple of years. Um, it's, it's a, it's a, you're going to hear the title and be like, what does this have to do with what we're talking about tonight? Just trust me on this. It's called, Is This a Sin? Ethical Triage and Church Discipline. It's written by an ethicist by the name of Andrew Walker. And in this article, he says this, you and I, as we come against issues that maybe the government is asking us to, to do, we need to do something called ethical, ethical triage. Okay, hang with me. I promise this is going to make sense. He says that you and I, as kingdom citizens in an imperfect government system, need to be able to differentiate between moral principles deduced clearly from Scripture and those that are not as clear. And can I just be really honest with you? 
my experience over the last three years in particular is that the church is not doing a great job on this. So we need to grow. I need to grow. You need to grow. He says that when it comes to ethical conflicts facing local churches, we need to carefully distinguish between what he calls categories of may, all right, permissible things, should or should not, those are advisable things, and must, obligatory things. In his article, he kind of breaks that down in, in this way. He says there are first order issues. These are issues that are clear according to the Bible. These are moral musts. No fancy moral reasoning is necessary when you look at those issues. Then he says there are second order issues. These are issues that the Bible doesn't explicitly address and which requires a number of steps in moving from biblical texts to ethical conclusions. Jonathan Lehman in his book, When the Nations Rage, which is about kind of like how you and I engage in the political system, he said he would call these jagged line issues. These are not straight line issues. So they can't easily be resolved by quickly citing one or two verses. But they are not necessarily morally neutral matters either. In other words, these are not musts, but maybe shoulds or probably shoulds. And then there's another category, another tier, third order issues. These are issues that are more firmly located in the domain of Christian freedom. These are non-essentials that Christians can, can and should respectfully disagree on and still be in fellowship together. So the challenge with any issue that is not a clear biblical issue is, I think, getting it in the right tier. For example, putting a third order issue in the first or second tier confuses and conflates the moral with the ethical. It places a new law on people. It has the, the possibility of binding a conscience. It simplifies something that is much more complex. One of my favorite songwriters once said it this way, I don't want to know if the answers aren't easy, just bring it down from the mountain to me. Remember the context here. How we submit or not submit to the government is the context. So careful and conscientious submission requires us to have integrity and attentiveness to the right distinctions. Is it a first order issue? Is it a second order issue? Is it a third order issue? Or maybe it's something like this. Um, it, it was a thought to be a first or second order issue, but really, it, it, if we're honest, it's evolved into or become more of a third order issue. We must consider the issue like that you have to if you're going to learn whether you should submit or not submit. So we said consider the relationship. We just said uh, consider the issue. But the third thing that we need to consider as we think about how we submit is to consider the approach. In part, what I think Paul is doing here is he's talking so forthrightly about our submission to government because he wants to say, when you come to a place where you do believe that you need to disobey, it should be rare and respectful. Now, I don't know, this is one of the places that I think the church has gotten off track over the last few years. Paul is not saying, again, that there aren't times to disobey. I do think he's saying that the norm is one of submission. Paul's words about paying our taxes, I think, highlights this. Many commentators say that Paul in this passage about taxes or this part of the passage about taxes 
is alluding to the discussion that, the, that, that Jesus had with the Pharisee, uh, Pharisees when they asked him whether they should pay taxes or not. And do you remember what Jesus said? It's the first Jesus juke of all time, by the way. He thought, you know, surely if, he, if they say, you know, give only to God what is due to him, don't worry about Caesar, um, they would catch him. But he didn't say that. He said what? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Honor Caesar, but don't forget God's image on you is the greater claim is what Jesus was saying. So as we engage these issues, gray areas will always be around, as will room for discussion among faithful Christians on these issues. So the church should labor to articulate when they have decided they're going to disobey or a Christian decides to disobey, they should labor to articulate why they believe it is appropriate. We should strive to keep the bar high for this act. This is why I I say rare and respectful. In other words, when it is determined to disobey, it should be done truthfully but respectfully. Even when a Christian or a congregation decides to do something against a governmental order, it should be done in a respectful manner, not an act of defiance. Very important difference. We should go out of our way to demonstrate humility, gentleness, and respect alongside that truth and forthrightness. We should consider the approach. But lastly, we should consider this. We should consider the result. Here's what I mean by that. In in the instance where we believe, you as a Christian, we as a church, believe we have an obligation to disobey a directive from the government, we must be ready to suffer the consequences of that decision. I think there's a misconception that because we may righteously not submit to the government, somehow... When we do that, in our own hearts, again, we feel justified in doing that. Hopefully, we've done it well and done it right with attentiveness and integrity. But we somehow, I think, think that if we do it right, we'll somehow avoid the ramifications of that decision. Not true. Remember Daniel. I just mentioned this earlier, the story of Daniel in Daniel 6. He would not do what the word of God uh, forbade him from doing, which was to eat a certain kind of food. And he would not stop doing what God commanded him to do, which was to pray. And when Daniel righteously disobeyed, Daniel was saying to the leaders at that time, I am ready to suffer whatever consequences you believe are just from my disobedience. The result was what? If you grew up in church, this was on a felt board somewhere probably. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. That is a severe repercussion. Daniel went into the lion's den wide-eyed. Not because of his fear, but because he knew this was the result of his decision. Now, don't misunderstand me. You may not agree with the consequence. Like, you may not like the repercussion of your disobedience. But if you have rightly considered the implications of your decision, it should be no surprise to you that you may suffer because of your decision. Friends, if we believe that disobedience is necessary, we must be willing to suffer the consequences of that decision. It may feel like a punishment. 
If we're called to obedience to God and our government says you're going to be punished for that, then we have to accept the implications of that decision. It may cost you. If you haven't counted the cost before you've made the decision, you're probably not ready to righteously disobey. So we must consider the relationship. We must consider the issue. We must consider the approach and the result. So we've said that those who govern should be governing in such a way that they are punishing what is bad. We said they also should be promoting what is good. We recognize that we live in a time where, and this has been true for all time, governments are not perfect. They don't do it righteously. So then those of us who are being governed have a responsibility to carefully and conscientiously submit to those who govern. That's really easy, I think, to come to the end of this sermon here and, and we just pray and be done here. And, and if we did that, we would, I think, be overstating the, the topic tonight. Let me tell you what I mean here. Paul's point here tonight isn't really actually to just tell us about our relationship to the government. Obviously, Paul wants us to consider that. It's good for us to consider that. But you all know this. I remember saying this a lot during the series we did on politics back in, well, that have been the fall of 2020. We are not citizens of a nation first. We are citizens of another kingdom. If you're a believer here tonight, you are looking for a city which the foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The world is not our home. Yes, we should engage with profound love and appreciation for our country while knowing that we are ultimately made for another country, a heavenly one. But I want to end here. Paul, um, I think, actually is sending us another message in Romans 13, 1 through 7. Pastor and author John Piper says, this is what really is underneath this passage. I'm just going to read the quote. This is Piper. He says, Paul wants us to know that the danger to our soul from unjust governments, listen, is nowhere near as great as the danger to our soul from the pride that pushes back against submission. How does that land on you? Piper goes on. No mistreatment. No unjust law has ever sent anyone to hell. But pride and rebellion is what sends everyone to hell who doesn't have a savior. Feel too strong? It isn't. Friends, the story of the Bible is this story of rebellion and God responding. It happens at the very beginning. Our first parents, our spiritual parents, our representatives of the human race, Adam and Eve, rebel against God. We see Satan himself symbolically reject and rebel against God in Isaiah 14. The story of the Bible is a story of rebellion and restoration. And what is God's response to that rebellion? In what way does God restore well, in one sense, he sends to us tonight bad news. First, death. 
the wages of sin is death. God responds to rebellion by saying, I gave life, you've turned against me, and so now that life deserves death. But here's even what's more difficult about the bad news. It's not just death on this side of eternity. Another way we could talk about God's response is this. He responds in judgment. Friends, if if you don't place your faith and trust in Jesus, there is coming a day on the other side of either your death or Jesus coming back where you will stand before him. And you will have to give an account for your life. So death... And judgment are the bad news responses from God. But we have to know that to understand the miraculous and magnificent good news. The good news, friends, is that Jesus died for rebels. He chose to come to earth to save us from that death, from that judgment, through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. And he's ascended and ruling and reigning right now. God turns rebels into the redeemed. So how should you respond to the truth of your own rebellion? There are five ways to respond. One is to say, no thanks. You say, I'm, I reject it. I'm done with this. Like, I'm going to keep doing my thing. That's one way to respond. Another way to respond is to say, Brad, maybe. Maybe you're right, but I'm not sure. Uh, friends, tonight, um, if you've heard anything, I pray you've heard that your rebellion has been answered through the cross. And maybe is also a rejection of God tonight. Could be. Another response could be later, Brad. Later is a rejection likely for you tonight, if that's what you were to say. Fourth response, and this is my prayer for maybe someone here tonight that has not placed their faith and trust in Jesus, to say, yes, I'm a rebel, and that is not working out for me. I need the gracious, redeeming work of Jesus to cleanse me of all of my unrighteousness, to be made new. There is a fifth response, and I would think in this room, there's a fair amount of this. You say, Brad, I've already said yes. And for you, it's to say, what are the ways that I'm continuing to rebel against God and repent of that? Friends, I I don't think Paul's biggest point tonight is like, here's how to conscientiously submit to the government. I mean, it's important and helpful. It's really helpful for us in the times we live. But I really think what what Paul is saying to us here is check your own rebellious heart. And friends, the good news of the gospel is that God turns rebels into the redeemed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father.